Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, if I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Scott Hickox. I'm part of the teaching team here, and it's an honor to be here. Tim's out of town this weekend, Ian Melody, and he asked if I could, if I'd be willing to come and teach today, and I'm, again, humbled and honored to get to do that. I was recognizing during first service as I was preaching that the message, uh, I mean, I've been living in it for a week or so, and it might be a little heavier than I realized, and just know that uh, I feel like I'm just preaching to myself this morning, and you guys are here uh, just to join in, so um, know this is for me. As much as for anyone else, I'm praying the Lord will use it. But um, let's, start, let's start with just a question before we, before we dig in this morning. I want you to just think about when you're driving down the highway. Um, just when you're driving down the highway. Have you ever noticed that the person driving slower than you is always a jerk? And the person driving faster than you is always a maniac, right? I mean, isn't it amazing how we can convince ourselves that what we're doing is right and what everyone else is doing is wrong? We seem to have almost this innate uh, human ability uh, to justify ourselves. And the sad consequence of that, unfortunately, is that when we justify ourselves, it usually gives us permission then to look down on those who are different than us. So if you have your Bibles or your device, if you want to open to Acts chapter 10, that's where we're going to be uh, today. And I think what we're going to see in chapter 10 is a beautiful picture of the Holy Spirit sort of breaking down those prideful, uh, sinful attitudes. Mark Dever, he's a pastor in Washington, D.C., and he calls this chapter the most important chapter in the entire Bible. Now, that's a, that's a pretty big a statement, but yet I, I think I understand what he's trying to say. I mean, the story is so important, it's told here in Acts chapter 10. It's going to be retold in chapter 11. It gets told again in Acts chapter 15. So what's the big deal with this chapter? Why is it so important? Well, if you remember when we started uh, this series in the book of Acts at the very beginning, uh, there's a verse in the beginning of the book, Acts 1.8, and it's sort, of, uh, it's sort of an outline for the entire book, right? It's Jesus' words right before he ascends into heaven. And he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And as we've been working our way through in Acts chapter 2, we saw that begin, right? The day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes down and the church is born in Jerusalem. And then in Acts chapter 7, after Stephen uh, is, is killed, the persecution arises and the church then scatters and they go to Judea and Samaria. And today we have the first preaching to a Gentile audience in Acts chapter 10. So do you start to see the, the significance here, why this is so important? I mean, I don't, know, I don't know everyone in here's background, but my guess is most of us aren't Jewish. And that means if Acts chapter 10 hadn't happened, we wouldn't be here today. So it's pretty important. Uh, Tim told us at the beginning of this series, uh, he said he felt like sort of the overview, the, the overall theme of the book, uh, of the book of Acts, was, is a picture of the Holy Spirit faithfully magnifying the Son through the faith-filled obedience of His people. That was sort of the big idea of the whole book. And I think what we're going to see in Acts chapter 10 is the Holy Spirit magnifying Jesus. And I would summarize it like this. Our big idea today in Acts chapter 10 is the Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus by welcoming outsiders in. Welcoming outsiders, it's really at the very heart of who God is. I mean, we saw Jesus live that out in the book of Luke. If you were here, we, we spent over a year in the book of Luke, and we saw Jesus do that over and over again. And now, in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is going to continue that, that work. And I, I think we're going to see it happen in three ways in our passage today. Um, I think outsiders are welcomed in as pride is exposed, as pardon is exalted, and as presence is expanded. Those are the things that make it possible, I think, for outsiders to be welcomed in, and as a result of that, then Jesus is going to be magnified 
and lifted up. So my goal for our time is we're going we're to walk through the passage and see how this plays out in the life of Peter, and then we'll conclude by hoping, hopefully seeing how it plays out in our own lives as well. Maybe one more thing before we start. I think it's, before we read the passage, I think it's difficult for us to really sort of feel the, the weight of what's happening in the passage today. I mean, I realize that our culture today, there's a lot of animosity, but the truth is, I don't think we have categories today to explain the, the hatred, the, the utter contempt that Jews and Gentiles had for each other. So I want you to just keep that in mind as we read our passage today. This is Acts chapter 10, and we're going to read the whole chapter. So it's going to take a little time, and my voice is already getting a little tired, so just bear with me, all right? Acts chapter 10, we'll start in verse 1. There was a man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the, Roman reg- excuse me, the Italian Regiment. He was a devout man and feared God along with his whole household. He did many charitable deeds for the Jewish people and always prayed to God. About three in the afternoon, he distinctly saw in a vision an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius, staring at him in awe, he said, What is it, Lord? The angel told him, Your prayers and your acts of charity have ascended as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and call for Simon, who is also called Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, he called two of the household servants and a devout soldier who was one of those who attended him. And after explaining everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day as they were traveling and nearing the city, Peter went up to pray on the roof about noon. He became hungry and wanted to eat, but while they were preparing something, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and an object that resembled a large sheet coming down, being lowered by its four corners to the earth. In it were all the four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and the birds of the sky. And a voice said to him, Peter, or excuse me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. No, Lord, Peter said, for I have never eaten anything impure or ritually unclean. And again, a second time, the voice said to him, what God has made clean, do not call impure. This happened three times, and suddenly the object was taken into heaven. While Peter was deeply perplexed about what the vision he had seen might mean, right away the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked direction to Simon's house, stood at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was also named Peter, was lodging there. While Peter was thinking about the vision, the Spirit told him, Three men are here looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them with no doubts at all, because I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men and said, Here I am, the one you're looking for. What's the reason you're here? They said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who has a good reputation with the whole Jewish nation, was divinely directed by a holy angel to call you to his house and to hear a message from you. Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. The next day he got up and set out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went with him. The following day he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him, fell at his feet, and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up and said, Stand up, I myself am also a man. While talking with him, he went in and found a large gathering of people. Peter said to them, You know it's forbidden for a Jewish man to associate with or visit a foreigner, but God has shown me that I must not call any person impure or unclean. That's why I came without objection when I was sent for. So may I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius replied, Four days ago at this hour at three in the afternoon, I was praying in my house. Just then a man in dazzling clothing stood before me and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your acts of charity have been remembered in God's sight. Therefore, send someone to Joppa and invite Simon here, who is also named Peter. He's lodging in Simon the Tanner's house by the sea. So I immediately sent for you and it was good of you to come. So now we are all in the presence of God to hear everything you have been commanded by the Lord. Peter began to speak. 
Now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. He sent the message to the Israelites proclaiming the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. You know the events that took place throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went about doing good and healing all who were under the tyranny of the devil because God was with him. We ourselves are witnesses of everything he did in both the Judean country and in Jerusalem. And yet they killed him by hanging him on a tree. God raised up this man on the third day and caused him to be seen, not by all the people, but by us whom God had appointed as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came down on all those who heard the message. They circumcised The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on even the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in other tongues and declaring the greatness of God. Then Peter responded, Can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay for a few days. It's the word of the Lord. Let me pray. God, we're grateful that you give us your word. We're grateful that you have given us your spirit um, to teach us. And that's what we need um, this morning. This whole book is about the work of your spirit. And Lord, we're grateful that your spirit continues to work even today. And we ask that he would do that now. Doing the things that he alone can do to teach, to convict, to encourage, to comfort. um, Whatever it is we need, and we all come with different needs, Lord, would you meet them by the power of your spirit, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to help, that's a long passage. Thanks for bearing with me. Uh, but, but really to help us understand the context, I want you to look back just a few verses at the end of chapter 9 because Luke tells us that Peter is in Joppa, and I think that's important for us to know. And in that last sentence, he says that Peter is, is staying with a guy by the name, or by, with Simon the Tanner. And there's so much in that sentence that I want us to just unpack quickly. Um, Joppa, the city of Joppa, it's only mentioned one other time in the Bible. I don't know if you remember it at all, but that's actually where Jonah fled when he was supposed to go and preach to the Ninevites. He tried to escape from God's call there. He went to Joppa. God ultimately then sends him from Joppa to preach to those who are far off. I think it's good for us to remember that that it's really, it's been God's plan from the beginning that outsiders would be welcomed in. He's always expected his people to take the good news to others. I mean, back when he called Abraham to to lead his people to be the father of many nations, he blessed him what? So that they would be a blessing to the nations. So it's not surprising to me that God would send Peter from Joppa to preach to those who are far off, to preach to the Gentiles, to, to welcome outsiders in. Again, one more thing there. He's staying where? At Simon the Tanners. Now, do you know what a, you know what a tanner is? Someone who works with, with leather. What does that mean? To get leather, you've got to work with dead animals, right? So he's got to touch dead animals. He's, he's ceremonially unclean. I mean, being a tanner was the lowest job that a Jew could have. And I think Luke wants us to know that Peter is staying with an unclean person. I think he's trying to set us up. He's telling us that the Holy Spirit is already at work in Peter. The Holy Spirit is already sort of pressing on Peter's pride and his, his prejudice. And so that's the context. Peter is in Joppa. And as as chapter 10 begins, then we're introduced to this man named Cornelius. 
We're told he's a centurion. That means he's over, uh, he, he's an Italian soldier, Roman soldier. He's over 100 men, right? Keep in mind, the Roman army is occupying the nation of Israel, so this guy sort of represents all that would be anathema to the Jews. Cornelius is in Caesarea. He's about 30 miles north of, of Joppa. And this angel comes to Cornelius and, and, and tells him that he needs to send for Peter and have him come to Caesarea to meet you. And unlike Peter's response, which we're going to look at in a minute, Cornelius immediately sends the men to find Peter. And the next day, while these guys are traveling, Luke tells us what's happening to Peter and Joppa. It's about noontime. He gets, he gets a little hungry. He goes up on the roof while he's waiting for them to prepare the food. And I don't know if he falls asleep, there's a trance, whatever, but he sees this, this vision. And in Peter's vision, a giant sheet comes down from heaven. The word that's used in the original language, it's like a giant sail on a sailboat. So this giant sheet comes down. And it's like a screening of animal planet that Peter sees now. All these animals are there that he has been forbidden to eat. And a voice says, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter's response reveals this bad habit that he has. I don't know if you notice it there. Um, Peter has a bad habit of saying no and Lord in the same breath. Right? I mean, do you remember? You remember when Jesus told his disciples that, that he was going to have to suffer? Peter said, no way, Jesus. Later in the garden, Jesus said, all you guys are going to fall away. And Peter said, not me, Lord. And now here he's told to rise and kill and eat. And he says, no, I'm not going to do it. I mean, it's, it's almost humorous if you think about it, that, that he, he calls him Lord, but then he says, I'm not going to do what the master tells me to do. I mean, how could he say those in the, in the same breath? It's, it's nonsensical almost. But isn't there a little bit of Peter in all of us? I mean, we want to call him Lord, right? We, we do love him. We want to follow him with all our heart. And yet, there's something in us that pushes back. That says, no, not, not now. Not, not in that way. And before we pile on Peter, keep in mind, again, I don't think we can fully appreciate the fact that for 1,400 years, he's been told he can't eat these animals. And all of a sudden, he sees the original pigs in a blanket, and he's supposed to eat. <laughs> Peter says, no, third time. And then comes this response that echoes through the centuries. I think it still challenges all forms of prejudice today. God says, what I have cleansed, you're not to call unclean. See, God's not concerned about Peter's hunger. He's concerned about his heart. He's exposing Peter's pride. You see, this prohibition against eating unclean animals, it was for a particular period and a particular purpose. And it was also intended to be this picture, I think, of human sinfulness. I mean, just like eating unclean animals made them unclean, so, so sin defiles our human spirit and, and keeps us from being able to enter into God's presence. You see, God had changed all that with the coming of Jesus, but Peter, he still doesn't get it. And so he says no three times. And then we're told that while he's thinking about what this vision meant, there's a knock at the door. And these men that Cornelius had sent uh, to, to find him are there. And so look at what happens in verse 23. Keep in mind, a devout Jew would never invite a Gentile in to eat with them. I mean, Gentiles ate food sacrificed to idols. 
They were ceremonially unclean. Again, everything about him is anathema to the Jews. But the Holy Spirit is at work here. Not just exposing Peter's pride, but but crushing it. So Peter welcomes the outsiders in. See, the walls are, are starting to come down. The Holy Spirit is working. And the next day, Peter agrees to travel with them to go to Caesarea to meet Cornelius. He's now going to go into a Gentile man's house. And again, this is so extraordinary. It's hard for us, I think, to to fathom this, but this just didn't happen. But Peter's heart has been changed. And when he gets there, the first thing Cornelius does is bow down. He, He tries to worship him. And I think Peter's response is yet another example, another demonstration of the work of the Holy Spirit, because Peter says, get up. He says, I'm a man just just like you. And in that response, Peter is acknowledging the gospel truth, that there is level ground at the foot of the cross, right? No one is better than anyone else, Jew, Gentile. His pride, his, his prejudice, it's all crumbling now. I think this is where what Paul describes in Ephesians 2 really begins to happen, this, this dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. I mean, Jesus destroyed it on the cross, It's becoming tangible now right here in Acts chapter 10. I mean, Paul says later in Galatians 3, there's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. They are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, it started to become a reality right here in Acts chapter 10 as the Holy Spirit is at work. And so Cornelius then tells him about this dream that he had. And he's gathered all his family and friends. They're eager to hear what the Lord has given Peter uh, to tell them. And Peter begins to preach, and the first thing he says is that now I know that God shows no partiality. Again, his pride, his prejudice exposed, eliminated really in that moment. Now, if you, if you want some homework, you could go read uh, Galatians later, and you'll see that this, uh, it, the pride and the prejudice in Peter's heart, it actually rears its ugly head again. And Paul, the Apostle Paul actually has to confront him face to face, right? But in this moment, it, it's eliminated, it's gone. So Peter begins to preach, continues to preach. And I want you to look, look at what Peter doesn't do. He doesn't say, stop sacrificing to idols. He doesn't say, stop eating bacon and, and wash your hands. He simply starts by talking about Jesus. He says, Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit. He, he performed miracles. He was crucified on a cross and God raised him from the dead. And he goes on and says, now God has commanded us to preach. And then in verse 43, this beautiful gospel promise, Peter says that all who believe in him receive forgiveness of sins through his name. See, Peter just preached the gospel. He tells him about the grace of God, that there is forgiveness in the name of Jesus. Since I was alliterating, it became the pardon is exalted. Okay? He's just preaching the gospel. He's talking about the forgiveness and the love of Jesus. It's not a long sermon. It's much shorter than mine. It's far more effective than mine. Look at what happens. While he was still saying these things, while he was still speaking, Luke tells us that the Holy Spirit fell on him. And I love this. There was no ceremony. There was no coming forward. There was no special music, no special prayer. Conversion happens when you believe Jesus died for you, period. And it happened. 
If you missed the message last week, Tim gave a great message on conversion. You should listen to it. When the pardon was exalted, when Peter told them that they could be forgiven of their sins, Jesus was magnified. And outsiders were welcomed in. People came to faith. The Holy Spirit fell on them. We're told they began to speak in tongues like it happened in chapter 2. It's amazing. I would submit that maybe this is like the biggest, the biggest moment in the history of the church because Acts 1-8 now is being fulfilled. The gospel can now go to the ends of the earth. The vision John had in Revelation 7 for every tribe, tongue, people, and nation is now being made possible because of what's happening here. The church's presence is expanding. I mean, what could be better? And guess what happens next? Religious people start to complain. Look at the beginning of chapter 14. We didn't go there yet, but word gets back to Jerusalem about what's happened. And so when Peter shows up, they criticize him. Look at verse 2. Now, when Luke says the circumcision party here, he's, returning to, he's referring to the circumcision party, not a circumcision party, okay? Just to be clear, uh, this is people who believe that circumcision was required for salvation. They had a checklist for new converts. They said, if you're going to get in, you're going to have to be circumcised. You're going to have to eat certain foods. You're going to have to do this, not do that. They had this long checklist. And you see, this didn't fit neatly into their box, and so they complained. Now, keep in mind, again, they had centuries of Old Testament law that they thought they were following here. They just didn't understand yet that Jesus was the fulfillment of that ceremonial law. So they at least had some reason for their objections. But what about us? We have the entire Bible now. We, we have the, the Holy Spirit. We, we know what God's Word says, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Period. So why are we so prone to add requirements to that list? Why, why do we get uncomfortable when outsiders are welcomed in. It makes me think of a, a story. When we, when we lived in St. Louis, I became friends with a woman there. We'll, we'll just call her name uh, Angie. And, and we became good friends. Uh, but the truth is, I never would have met her. I never would have become her friend had not some people in our church come around her and, and loved her and, and welcomed her in. She had a horrific past. She had an abusive mother. She had multiple abusive relationships. She had bad experiences with the church. She was not interested in Jesus or the church. But these people befriended her. They began to love her. They, they invited her to church, and, and she came. Uh, they invited her to their, their small group, and, and she came. And that made some people uncomfortable. You see, Angie, was, she was homosexual. She lived uh, with another woman. And if I'm honest, I, I was uncomfortable at first. I mean, I'm embarrassed to admit, but that I, from a distance, judged her before I met her. But you see, these people continued to love her. And after about two years of faithfully hearing the gospel preached every week, about, after being surrounded by people who, who loved her, after about two years, she gave her life to Christ. Amen. And she was, <laughs> thank you, she was baptized. Um, she ultimately became a member of our church. And I just remember on the day she was baptized, I went to her um, 
And through some tears, I told her that she was my hero. And I told her that when I came to faith, it was pretty easy. I, it didn't cost me anything. I still had my family. I still had my friends. Not much changed. It didn't cost me anything. It cost her everything. She had to leave the woman she loved. She had to leave a, a, a lifestyle that she was used to. She had a community of people that she thought cared about her. You see, she counted the cost. And she realized that Jesus was worth it. She had experienced the love and the forgiveness of Jesus, and so she was in. An outsider was welcomed in, and Jesus was exalted. It was beautiful. Go back to our story here. Look at verse 4 of chapter 11. After complaining, Peter recounts the whole story for them. He tells them everything that had happened. See, Luke's going to tell the story to us again, I think because he knows we need, to, we need to hear it again. And then in verse 17, Peter concludes by saying, If then God gave them the same gift that he also gave to us when we believed, how could I possibly hinder God? See, Peter recognized that the Holy Spirit is at work. That Jesus is magnified when outsiders are welcomed in. And so Peter says, Who am I to stand in the way? I think that's a good question for us, and that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. If Jesus really is magnified when outsiders are welcomed in, then, then how might we be hindering that? How do we stand in God's way? How, how maybe do we keep outsiders from being welcomed in? I would encourage you to think about that. I'm, gu I'm guessing the list is longer than we want to admit, but I'm going to just submit three things for us today. When we lose sight, when we lose focus, and when we lose touch. I think it starts when we lose sight of who we are. I mean, remember where we started? <laughs> the person driving faster than us, the person driving slower than us. Both of them were wrong, and we were right. I think that simple illustration is just a, a demonstration of what happens regularly in our prideful hearts. When we think we're right and others are wrong, what, what, what typically happens is we become self-righteous. I've shared this definition before, but I just think it's so good. Self-righteousness is simply looking down on someone because they sin differently than you. It's what it is. It's what Peter did with Cornelius. It's what I did with Angie. See, we can so easily label people and we can become convinced that they're just they're too far gone, they're too far outside, they could never be in the kingdom. And when we do that, don't you see what we've done? We've just created this sort of us versus them mentality. Tim talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but people like us are good. People who aren't like us are bad. I've shared this quote before too, but Anne Lamott says, you can safely assume you've created God in your own image when God hates all the same people that you do. You see, us against them, it just reinforces the notion that we're better than them. It fuels our pride. And again, it leads to us getting to that place where we think they could never be saved. We, we don't have to go to them. I mean, think about what we just talked about last week. If you were here, we have to be careful. Last week, we talked about the conversion of Saul. He, he was a religious terrorist. He was killing Christians. And God saved him. We need to remember that. God is in the business of saving sinners. Praise the Lord for that. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for that. 
There's a story of a young C.S. Lewis. He was about 10 years old. And the story goes that he, he went to his dad um, and he said, Dad, I think I'm prejudiced against Italians. And his dad was a little confused. And so he said, well, why? And Lewis responded, he said, I don't know. If I knew, it wouldn't be prejudice. You see, he was already so wise. I mean, the definition of prejudice is to prejudge, right? It's to judge without all the information. And I just think we're prone to do that so often. One last quote here I'm just challenged by so often. simply says this, don't judge, don't judge their story by the chapter you walked in on. You see, so often we don't know the whole story. And so what happens? We, we make assumptions. And typically when we do that, we make assumptions that fit our narrative, that make us feel better about ourselves, and make it easier to look down on others. That's what pride does. Pride builds walls between us and them, insiders and outsiders. Listen, Jesus came to tear those walls down. He came to welcome outsiders in. So we can hinder God. We can get in his way when we lose sight of who we are. That's why our pride has to be exposed. The second way we can hinder God, I think, is when we lose focus. Um, it's not too difficult to look around today and see lots of things wrong with the world, right? Um, there's a lot to choose from, amen? Yeah. Um, but when those things become our focus we can easily get off track. And I would submit that maybe, maybe telling outsiders what's wrong with them or what they're doing wrong shouldn't be our first step. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying we don't speak the truth, all right? We do. Scripture is clear. We speak the truth in love. I would just submit that there is a, a time and a place that is more effective. And we'll get there in a minute. I'm simply saying if we don't want to hinder what God's doing, if we don't want to hinder outsiders being welcomed in, then our focus should first be on Jesus, be on His grace and His forgiveness. Because here's the truth. I mean, the world has a pretty good idea of what the church is against. They do. But do they know what we're for? I mean, what if we focus like Peter on talking about Jesus first? His life, His death, His resurrection, why He came, why we need Him. Jesus tells a story in Matthew 18, and it's supposed to be a story, I think, that characterizes the life of every redeemed sinner. It's a story about a man that has been forgiven a large debt. And, and Jesus uses uh, the number, he says, 10,000 talents. A talent was a large sum of money in and of itself. But in many contexts, 10,000 was sort of the maximum, the ultimate amount it sort of signified an infinite amount of money. And so here's this man that owes another man an infinite amount of money. And the day comes for the debt to be paid. Excuse me. I know many of you know uh, the story. But the man shows up in court. And everyone is watching. And this man falls down on his knee and he just begins to plead with the man that he owes the money to. And he says, please just give me a little more time. Because in those days, if you couldn't pay your debt, you, you could be thrown in prison. Your whole family could be thrown into prison. And so he says, please, just, just give me another week. But if you think about it, it's, I mean, it's a ridiculous request. Because another week's not going to make any difference at all. 
Another 10,000 weeks wouldn't be enough. He's never going to be able to repay this man. And everyone in the courtroom is, is watching. And it's almost sort of a, a pitiful spectacle, really. And they know what's going to happen. The guy who's owed the money is going to send this guy to prison. That's what he deserves. But in Jesus' story, the man owed the money looks on the other man with compassion. And with a tear in his eye, he, he does something that no one can believe is happening. He looks at the man and he says, stand up. And he says, you don't, you don't have another week to pay me back because you don't owe me any money anymore. He says, as of this moment, your debt is resolved in the presence of all these witnesses. You are forgiven. And the man, I mean, he, he can't even understand. He can't believe it. The weight has been lifted. He, he almost floats out of the courtroom. And as he leaves the courtroom, he, he walks across the street and he runs into a friend who owes him a coffee at Starbucks. And he says, hey, give me that five bucks that you owe me. And the other man says, oh man, I'm so sorry. It's been a tough stretch. I don't have a, a job right now, but I promise you, I'll give you that $5. I will. And the man says, no, I want it today or I'm going to throw you in prison. Now you can imagine at this point of the story, everyone is shaking their heads. They're saying, come on, Jesus. This would never happen. Nobody who's being forgiven an infinite amount of money would ever hold someone in contempt for five bucks. And Jesus says, Exactly. Which means if we are characterized by disgust at someone else's sin, instead of being overwhelmed by the forgiveness that God has given to us, it means we're desperately out of touch with the gospel. If we took our focus off of other people's sin and instead we focused on the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus to us, I'm convinced that outsiders would be, feel more welcome. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Church, that is good news for all of us. So we're to speak the truth in love, absolutely. I'm just suggesting the time to do it is after you've talked about Jesus. Start with the truth first. Make him the priority. If we don't want to hinder outsiders being welcomed in, focus on Jesus, the pardon will be exalted. And let me just add, let me add one more thing. When you focus on that forgiveness, I would say focus on your forgiveness first. When you begin to reflect on all that Jesus has forgiven you, you're going to be far less concerned about everyone else. See, you won't have to figure out how to hate the sin and love the sinner because instead you're going to be focused on hating your sin. And loving the sinner becomes so much easier. When we focus on other people's sin instead of our own, when we don't focus on Jesus and his forgiveness, I'm convinced that we can hinder God. We can get in his way. When we lose sight of who we are, when we lose focus on who Jesus is and what he's done, we, what happens, I think, is, as I mentioned before, we just start to naturally live in this us versus them environment. And the, the natural result of that is that we start to isolate which causes us to lose touch with others. And I think that's the third way that we can hinder God. Technology has made us, I think, more connected than ever before, and yet we are like the loneliest generation in the history of the world. How, how are we going to reach people if we don't even talk to them? If we don't have a relationship with them? Peter went to the house of Cornelius, and God is calling us to go 
to people outside these walls. So see, speaking the truth in love, I think, is most effective in the context of relationships. That's when we can do it. And I know sometimes we're tempted in this social media age, we're tempted to think, well, a Facebook post is the best to speak some truth out there. I can reach the largest number of people. I have over 500 friends on there. Maybe a tweet or an Instagram post. That, that will do it. Then I can show people where I stand. I can really deliver the truth. Can I just say, um, usually that's not the best way. Oftentimes, it's not even a good way. The Holy Spirit will magnify Jesus as he expands our presence, as, as we actually go to people who are far off. I'm not talking about going to Turkey or India or somewhere else. Now, if God calls you, go. Right, Ben? Amen. Amen. Um, if he calls you there, go. But I think for most of us, the people he wants us to expand our presence to are people at work or across the street or maybe in your own family. Invest in those relationships. Teddy Roosevelt once said that people don't care how much you know unless they know how much you care. It happens in the context of relationships. So let me close with this this story. Um, She she was 15. He was 17 when they first met. They dated throughout their sort of high school years, and and nobody was surprised that, that after high school they immediately got married. And about four years later, um, she's standing in her kitchen. Dirty dishes are in the sink, two kids at her feet, and a pile of dirty diapers in the corner. And tears are just streaming down her face. And looking back, she, she can't, still can't understand why she made the decision that she did. But that day she took off her apron and walked out. Later that night she called and, and her husband, young husband answered the phone and he certainly had a mix of emotions. He's confused, he's angry, he's frustrated. He says, where are you? What's, what's going on? She ignored the question just said, how are the kids? He said, well, if you mean are they fed and taken care of? Yes, I put them to bed, they're fine, but where are you? And when are you coming back? She just hung up the phone. It wouldn't be the last call. She called a couple times a week for the next few months. And every time the conversation was similar, the husband knew that something was wrong, and so he would try to communicate to her, listen, the kids are fine. The grandparents have the kids. I'm taking care of them. We love you so much. We miss you. Would you please just come home? But he would also want to ask, where are you? How are you doing? But anytime the conversation went to her location, she simply hung up. And when he could take it no longer, he finally took their savings out of the bank and he hired a private investigator to find her. And after a little time, the the private detective found her living in a third-rate motel in Muskegon, Michigan. So he went to his in-laws, he borrowed some money, he bought a plane ticket, and he flew to Michigan. And he walked up the, the three flights of stairs to the room where she was staying. And if you would have been there, you would have seen the fear in his eyes sort of the perspiration on his forehead, and his hand was trembling as he went up to knock on the door. And when she opened the door, the speech he had written, he completely forgot. And he just said, we love you so much, would you please come home? And she just collapsed in his arms, and she went home with him that night. And a few weeks later, they were sitting on the couch, the kids were in bed, and and he finally got the courage to ask the question that had been haunting him uh, for so long. He said, honey, I I just don't understand. Why, after 
I told you over and over how much we loved you and just asked you to come home. Why wouldn't you come home? And with profound simplicity, she said, because before, those were just words. But then you came. You see, I love that because that's a picture of what Jesus has done for us. It's a picture of what he calls us to do with others. Jesus came. He didn't stand at a distance. He came to us and he said, I love you so much. Would you please just come home? He didn't wait for us to clean up our acts. He didn't wait for us to come to him. He came to us first. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were the outsiders and he welcomed us in. Church, I think when we remember what he's done for us, we will expand our presence. We'll welcome outsiders in. We'll be more willing to go to him. The more you know of his great love for you, the more that love will spill out of you towards others. The more we become aware of how far Jesus reached out to save us, the more we're going to overflow with grace and compassion towards others. I mean, 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. The more we're saturated with his love, the more we will love. The more we believe the gospel, the more our lives will reflect the gospel. Church, just immerse yourself in this truth. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom you and I are the worst. Remember the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that in you his poverty, in his poverty you might become rich. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. That God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'm convinced when we remember what Jesus did for us, our pride will be exposed and our presence will expand. We will go to outsiders. We will welcome them in. And Jesus will be exalted. That's the goal because he's worthy of it all. So let's be that kind of people. Let's be that kind of church. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you didn't wait for us, but that you came. You stepped in. And you welcomed us home. Lord, would you, by the power of your spirit, would you make us just more aware of our own sin, more aware of your incredible grace and forgiveness towards us? That we would be so overwhelmed by the forgiveness that you've given us in your son Jesus that we couldn't focus on the sins of others. We'd just be consumed with gratitude for what you've done for us. Lord, make us a welcoming people. We long to see that vision fulfilled that people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will gather around the throne and worship you. Thank you for inviting us to be a part of that process. Use us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, church. He is worthy. And yet he welcomes us in. It's beautiful news. I just, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, if you are here this morning and maybe you heard some stuff that you have questions about, maybe you feel like an outsider, we want to welcome you in this morning. So please come and talk to us. The invitation from Jesus is open. He will forgive all your sins. He's inviting you in. And so please don't leave this morning without talking to somebody if you have questions about that. And I would just add too, you might be here this morning, you might be a believer, a follower of Jesus, and yet still, today, you might feel like an outsider. There might be some sin that you're dealing with. You might feel shame today. Listen, the promise is for you. Forgiveness is for all. 
Your sins are covered. Believe that this morning. Again, talk to somebody if that's where you are this morning, all right? I don't want you to leave with questions about that. Just read a verse here. If you're comfortable, you can extend your hands. I'm just going to give a benediction here. To him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory, dominion forever and ever. Amen. Go in peace.